we're going to come to the Word of God. And why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38, as we look to God's Word, I pray that it will take root in your hearts as we consider it. And I'm going to... um, We had a number of visitors, and we had several other announcements, so we won't have uh, time for you to greet one another now, but I, I trust that you will later on, uh, because I need to get into the text that's in front of us, Isaiah chapter 39, and just pray with me, Lord God, thank you for your goodness. I pray that in these moments ahead, uh, you would help us um, to hear your word, help me to communicate it that the people of God will be encouraged, that they would be edified, and whatever is necessary in each individual heart, uh, that your sovereign power will accomplish that. In Christ's name, amen. The trustworthiness of God, or we've entitled the series, uh, How to Rest in the Trustworthiness of God. And this is number eight in this series. We began in chapter 36 of Isaiah and uh, I pray that it's been a profitable time for you. As a matter of fact, I was, um, we had a, a meeting with our, the elders here in Anchored, and it was a, a video conference just to check up on what is happening in ministry. And we prayed for many of you and talked about situations that we're addressing in the group and planning ahead for other things. And uh, we had a section where we talked about the lessons that are being taught Um, what we've been learning in Isaiah and also in Zechariah and any input that the men may have. And and I made a statement, uh, which I repeat, that uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I pray that it's been beneficial to others, uh, but I know it's been beneficial to me. Uh, The study, the reflection, the thoughts that go into it, things that I've learned, things that God has reaffirmed in my life um, through this study. And that's where a study should be anyway, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a preacher like I'm doing now or, or in another setting or you're just a Sunday school teacher or you're, you lead a table at the women's group or whatever it may be, or you're simply studying the Word of God for your own soul, uh, for your individual study. When we look at God's Word, uh, it should benefit us first. And I think we all agree with that, do we not? We look at it and we should be amazed at it, uh, amazed at the truths that are in God's Word and it should edify us, and, and it should take root in our hearts even before uh, we give it to someone else. And that's always the best way that we have experienced the Word of God. And I know some people, they hear this word experience, uh, and they get a bit troubled. I'm not sure why, uh, because uh, Christianity is an experience. It is a relationship. It is you looking at God's Word, and God's Word is, in fact, alive, is it not? It is not dead, and it takes root in the heart and even in the mind. And then if it takes root properly, then it's going to reflect itself in your actions because your thinking has changed. And when we have right thoughts about God, those right thoughts about God should then energize us and motivate us to live a life that's different than what we had before we engaged with God in his word or in prayer or Christian service. But we can have those great experiences and God can meet with us through his word and and through the communion of the Holy Spirit. And then we can make a bad decision. You know, this passage is about that. Such a wonderful experience that Hezekiah had. And then in this next moment, we see him making a poor decision. I think everyone in this room can identify with that to a certain degree that we can look at the blessings of God and how God has done something in our life and it is evident that it is from the hand of God. And in the next moment, we find ourselves not following the Lord or doing something that's contrary to even what God has shown us in his word or through the teaching from others. And a part of that, as you see these three words under that title, Pride, repentance, and compassion that we'll see. Pride. Pride. I mean, throughout the redemptive narrative, we repeatedly see this battle with pride, the consequences of pride. And also, thankfully, we see the solution to 
its damning outcomes in this unfolding of God's word. In the Messiah, we see the opposite of pride. We see humility that acts as a standard for all men, yet that standard which Jesus Christ has set is often missed. And that's that process of sanctification where we, the scripture tells us even we stumble in many ways in all of us. And if you don't stumble, the scripture says that you're a perfect man. And I've not met a perfect man. I've not met a perfect woman. They do not exist. Do you all agree with me on this? They just don't exist. But I'm so thankful that there's one that does who is at the right hand of God even now, and even as we were singing, that we sing our praises and blessings and honor to him forever. And because he lived that perfect life, and now those who trust him, that life is now imputed to us. This righteousness is to us. But yet we still fail. It's miserable at times. And instead of maybe trusting the Lord with this absolutely perfect example that's set before us of faithfulness and support. Men and women throughout history have done what? They've depended on themselves instead. I would depend on self, and that's what we've heard repeatedly through this series. Don't rely on self. Rely on the Lord. God is trustworthy. To Israel, don't rely on alliances. Don't rely on your riches. Don't rely on your abilities. Don't rely on your armaments. Don't rely on your wisdom, rely on the Lord of hosts. And there are times when pride surfaces in one sense within an earshot of God's blessings. That is, there are moments in life when we have experienced the undeniable grace of God. And instead of allowing those experiences to in one sense uh, place us on a, a dramatically different course of life, what do we do? We find ourselves reverting back to the patterns of the past. And we might even say, that's shameful, isn't it? Here it is. It's undeniable. God has moved in my life. He has blessed my life. But instead of that somehow getting a hold of my heart and placing me on a path, a new direction, what do we do? We go back to the past. We hold on to sin. We hold on to our preferences. We hold on to hurt. We hold on to whatever issue is preventing you from following that path. But there is another word that gives hope, and it's this word repentance. See, redemptive history is also rich with examples of repentant people. Pride is overcome by those who see their failure, and they humble themselves, and they turn from that which dishonors God, and what do they do? They turn to the things that would honor God. See, prideful people, as I've already said, they hold on to sin and they hold on to thoughts and they hold on to grievances. And those things capture their will and hold them bound or they're bound by those things. People like that think they're free, but they're not free at all. People like this say they want freedom, but they really don't want freedom. They're bound by their sin and their lust and their passions and their desires and their selfishness and their pride. This is what happens. And what do other people do? Uh, what they do is they, they hold on to their human resources. And those human resources that they believe will be their help, will be their savior, instead of, as we've seen throughout this narrative from 36 to where we are now, rely on the Lord, rely on the Lord, rely on the Lord. So people at times say, I can, I have this. I can do this. So in contrast to holding, repentance says, let me let go of anything that dishonors God and follow a new path. There's another word, and we sing it at times, grace, grace, God's grace. What does it say? Grace that is greater than what? Say it. Um, amen for that, right? I mean, where would we be without the grace of God? I mean, where would we be without God extending himself to us in time of need? Uh, where would we be without the but gods of life? That is when God intervenes in, in situations that are absolutely beyond us spiritually and even at times, even physically. If God had not intervened in Jerusalem against the mighty Assyrians, 
where would they be? If God had not intervened in the life of Hezekiah, the consequences of it are tragic at multiple levels. And it's not just Hezekiah losing his life. Remember, he is a part of the seed. So without a Hezekiah, there is no seed. But God intervenes. And we're so thankful because even when we say grace and we can sing that song, God intervenes when we are undeserving and we can all say amen to that. So in this chapter, we will take note of pride and repentance and grace. In this final lesson, here it is, number eight in this series, this will act in one sense as an admonition for us all to be the people that God wants us to be to rest in the trustworthiness of God and nothing else. In chapter 8, it, we, we saw Hezekiah, I'm sorry, chapter 38, Hezekiah cries out to the Lord when the pronouncement has come, put your house in order, you are going to die. And he cries out to the Lord and it says, and Hezekiah wept bitterly and God sends a word to him, even as the prophet Isaiah had not even left the court. He was in the middle of the court, and the word came to his, came to Isaiah saying, Here, I've added 15 years to your life. But not only had, did he say that, he says, I've heard your prayer. Remember what he said? I've seen your what? What did he say? Your tears. That heartfelt prayer. I've heard it. I've seen it. And I'm responding to you. And we would be a people that can learn from Hezekiah in that way, to part our heart before the Lord. See, this is the sort of prayer that a Hannah had. You remember Hannah? Hannah is childless, and she is being ridiculed. And, and then what does she do? She goes before the Lord, and she pours out her heart before the, the Lord. And the man of God thinks that she's drunk. What is this? What are you doing? And she says, no, my Lord, but I am pouring out my heart before the Lord. And that's what we must learn to do at times, to pour our heart out before God. And so in chapter 39, I want us to consider the three truths concerning pride and the character of God that we should consider. In understanding these truths about sin and, and God's grace should help us appreciate God all the more. And then what I'm going to do once we work through this passage I'm going to give you some concluding thoughts. You know, I tend to say in my conclusions a final thought, and I'll give you something um, to consider that I want us to think about some principles for the application of this passage, but also in one sense highlight principles from what we've already studied. Here's the outline, and it's this. Number one, pride conflicts with the trustworthiness of God. There's a conflict. When one is prideful, one cannot be trusting. We're going to note that in the first two verses, and then we're going to go to Second Chronicles and notice the parallel there. And then number two is this, pride incurs the chastisement of God. We see that in verses three, and we'll call it through 8a, the chastisement of God. And we might even say, uh, perhaps I'll say it later, it incurs the, the just chastisement of God. But in one sense, uh, we don't really have to add that. Because anytime God brings about judgment, we know that it's just. It's automatic because its source is God, is it not? Yeah. And number three, pride conflicts with the compassionate nature of God. We'll notice that in the last phrase that is in 8b. But number one, pride conflicts with the trustworthiness of God. Notice what it says, and I think I have there 38. Do I? I don't know, um, that's a serious typographical area there. Um, and this is what, this is helps one deal with pride, because now I've experienced a dose of humility. <laughs> Amen. So this is chapter 39, okay? Chapter 39. <laughs> the Lord is so good. I mean, how can, you, how can you plan for these sort of things, right? It just flows right into the introduction, right? Verse 1, notice what it says. And at that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold 
and it says, and the spices and the precious oil in his whole armory and all that he had found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all the dominion that Hezekiah did not show him. So let's deal with some thoughts here. At that time, let's start there. So when he says at that time, this is connecting it with chapter 38. And remember, we've already concluded as we look at chapter 37 to 39, that 38 and 39 are actually either just before 36 even begins, or it's in the midst of what is happening as Shennacherib is coming upon Jerusalem. And there's a reason for this order, which I'll even give you at the end of this lesson, and I've communicated a bit before. So the king of Babylon, Merodach Baladon, who was actually, he was king of Babylon twice. He was disposed by Shennacherib um, at the end of his reign, and he had been fought out by, I think it was Sargon II, um, who had fought him off before, but he comes back again. He continues to want to rebel against Assyria. And in the midst of it, we believe that he is coming to Hezekiah because he has heard what has happened to Hezekiah. He's heard that Hezekiah was ill, and now he's coming to, in one sense, give presence to him because of this. Hezekiah has recovered. But there's also, I believe, a motive here as well, which most would agree. He's coming to say, maybe we can have an alliance to Babylonians and the Judeans, and we can fight off these Assyrians. Oh, my word. (laughs) That's why I took it out of my pocket. And she did it with a British accent, too. At least it wasn't Alexa, I know. Oh, my word. (laughs) Technology. (laughs) I guess we can edit that portion out. I seem to have a problem hearing you. Well, if if you listen better, you wouldn't. Amen. So, what happens? He comes, let's have an alliance. Let's fight against the Assyrians. We have a mutual enemy. And so, uh, Merodach Baladon, he wants to rise again in Babylon. He's been put off once. Now he's in power again. And he's thinking, wait a minute, there's perhaps someone that will have an ear towards my proposition. Remember, if the word is spread to Babylon that Hezekiah was near death and now he's healed, there's some sense, well, his God, he's not recognizing Yahweh for for he truly is, but his God perhaps is a powerful God. And let's have the gods of Judea and the gods of Babylon against the God of Assyria and we can win. And what does Hezekiah do in this foolish moment? What does he do? He shows off all of his treasuries and all of his monies and all of his armory. And perhaps in one sense, it was a prideful moment that says, perhaps we could. Look at all of my treasury. Look at all of my armory. Look at all the preparation that I've made. And we've we've addressed that already about the preparation that was made for the incoming Assyrian attack. Remember, the Assyrian, Shennacherib, he is coming down... Through Judea, he has destroyed 48 cities of Judea, and Jerusalem is last. But is that trusting the Lord? It's not. In the natural, is it sensible? Absolutely. But we're not talking about the natural, are we? We're talking about the supernatural and the spiritual. And even as we sang earlier, if God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? It doesn't matter. I don't need your alliance. All I need is to trust and to rest and to know that Yahweh is in fact the Lord of armies and he will protect us. And it says that he showed him all. What we see here is in chapter 38, this is undermining even the promises that he made In verses 10 to 20, as Hezekiah writes this great psalm of thanksgiving because God is going to heal him, now it undermines that. It puts all of that in jeopardy. Hezekiah says, God, 
don't allow me to die. I want to praise you and honor you. Remember the language we looked at last week. The dead can't thank you. The dead can't praise you. At least in the land of the living, they can't. So give me life. And he gave him 15 more years of life. And I asked the question at the end of the message last week about if you knew you had 15 more years of life, how would you live? If you knew this date, mark this day right here, January the 12th, 2020, and you knew that in 15 years you were going to die, would you orchestrate your life differently? I would think so. And here it is, Hezekiah knows, I have 15 years that this gracious, loving God is giving me, and now he receives this life. And what does he do? Look at all that I have. Look at all that I have. This shows us about the frailty of the human nature, does it not? I mean, one moment it is, in fact, praising and honoring, giving glory to God, and the next moment it's praising and honoring, giving glory to self. And this is what we see with Hezekiah. And there is a bit of irony here as well. Think about this with me. We know that later on, the Babylonians will, in fact, take away Judah, will they not, into exile. And who was that king? Someone tell me. Well, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Okay, I tricked you with that. I didn't didn't do it intentionally. But Nebuchadnezzar. What is one thing Nebuchadnezzar, great kingdom, so he defeats the other kingdoms. He now is... uh, the marquee leader of the known world. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? At one episode, we see in the book of Daniel, he goes out to his roof and he says what? Look at all my glory. Look at all my glory. He turns into a man cow, I suppose. <laughs> Look at all my glory. All these things essential which my hands have made. Doesn't that sound similar? There's an irony to this. That Hezekiah, man that should be worshiping and resting in the sovereign Yahweh, is now, in one sense, behaving like this pagan king, even before the pagan king behaves that way. But that's a tendency for us all, in some measure or another, to go out on the rooftop of our own houses and say, look at all my hands have made. And we need to remember, no, your hands have not made it. It's because of the grace of God. Amen. Be careful to remember that. Lest you be like a Nebuchadnezzar or lest you be like a Hezekiah. Notice what else it says. His heart was proud. He said, wait a minute. I don't see that in Isaiah 39. (laughs) But that's why we have to study. Go with me to 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32, look at verse 20. Verse 20, Hezekiah, but King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to the Lord. He sent an angel, destroyed the Assyrians, And then what happens? They brought gifts to Hezekiah. Then it says in verse 24, in those days, so it's connected with this, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. And we know from Isaiah 38, the sign was simply that I'm going to give you 15 years of life. And what was the sign is that now time is going to be dialed back. The shadow is going to move back on the staircase. And then he gives them a sign in this sense that he says, apply the, the fig cake to your whatever the ailment was, and he was healed. So, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke and gave him a sign. But notice verse 25. But Hezekiah, what does it say in, in the NASB? Gave no return for the benefit he received. Pause for a moment. Don't even look at your Bibles right now. Although I love for you to look, in, to look at your Bibles. <laughs> but for a moment, think about that. God has intervened. He's cried to the Lord. He wept before the Lord. The Lord says, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And it says, but Hezekiah gave no return for what he had received. An ungrateful heart if we've ever seen one. 
But the question is, what is the source of an ungrateful heart? Well, it's right here. Go back. Verse 25, it tells us clearly, does it not? Because his heart was what? Proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and on on Judah and Jerusalem. The prideful heart is an ungrateful heart. Because the ungrateful heart does not recognize the source of one's blessings. And there is a tendency, as we all may have a tendency to do, we look to our own achievements and what we have done, our own efforts. Say, for instance, some of the men that you uh, that recognize themselves um, this morning that are visiting with us, uh, that are in seminary, that are new men that are on campus. I think we have uh, at least resident program um, 23 men. I introduced myself to them this week, and, and we talked about working hard, and I talked to some of those men and said, this is TMS. It's going to require hard work, and you're going to need people that can help you get through this. And, and I'll ask students, how many units are you taking? And one student told me 12, and it doesn't sound like much. It says 12 at TMS is 18 anywhere else. That's just the way that it is. And the tendency for the seminarian is to say, I got this. I'm disciplined, I'm determined, I'm motivated. This is a form of pride. Instead of relying on the living God. And this is why at times, and this is not me picking on seminarians, uh, but this is just the reality. This is why at times even for seminarians that are here in this place, conservative, high view of God, right view of scripture, right view of the church, that you ask them about their prayer life, and it's in a shambles. But they have a 3.98 GPA. Hmm, let's see here. Which shall I choose? Hmm. Now, if I made sort of a simple, another application to the lives and how you may live, do you think there would be some application to your life at times? If you're honest, there is. He showed them all. There was pride in his heart. I mean, think about pride. We go back to the fall of, of mankind. Do we not pride? We think about Lucifer. Uh, he was beautiful and he was exalted. And yet until pride was found in your heart, pride, there's pride and the murderer Cain. God says to Cain, um, why is your countenance fallen? Sin is crouching at the door. Do what is right and your countenance will be lifted up. But it says of Cain, Cain became angry and he went out and did what? Slew his brother. Pride. It's in all of us. And last week I distinguished between failure and frailty. Now Hezekiah's illness was frailty. Uh, It is not sinful that he was ill. It's not sinful that your loved one or yourself, you you may have a battle with cancer or some other ailment. Now we know ultimately it goes back to sin and the fall, but it's not a sin to have that frailty. But here it's failure because it's pride. It's different here. He doesn't get off the hook here. See, pride can cause people to forget the blessings of God. And sometimes pride can cause us to have sort of a memory loss or, or perhaps it's sort of this historical revisionism. We don't, we don't see things the way they truly are. And we're revising in our minds and we think that somehow we have more to do with the success of this event than we really did. And that's why God told um, the people of God in Deuteronomy, remember that I've delivered you. And he says, when you forget what is going to happen, you will fall away from me. So remember, we see it throughout. Remember, remember, remember. This is why the scripture is written to the church at Ephesus. And what does it say to the church at Ephesus? Remember where you have fallen. Remember that. And go back to where you were before. Return to your first love. This is why Paul himself would remember who he was as a sinner and that realizing who he was as a sinner would motivate him in his Christian life. Remember, it is so important that we remember. Remember the blessings of God. Remember your salvation. 
Remember who you were before Christ. Remember how God intervened in your life. Remember how God provided for you. If I were to start right now and to say, let's just stop and sort of have an old-fashioned testimony church service, and you were to begin to stand up and say, well, I would like to give testimony of God's faithfulness in my life. Question, um, would, who would have something to say? Well, I know I would. <laughs> would you not have something to say? Well, God is a faithful God, and he has blessed my life throughout. And shame on me for forgetting Hezekiah forgot. It's important that we remember the blessings of God. I look to my finger and I remember, it's another remembrance of marriage. I look to my right wrist and I've been wearing this ever since my trip to Africa. It's a remembrance where God placed something on my heart that I need to follow up on it. In a couple of weeks, we'll come to our, our service and, and we'll remember the Lord's death. Did he not say that? Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Lest we grow cold to the death of Jesus Christ. Remembrance is important. And I, put, I think that perhaps some of you may need to jar your memory so that you can savor the blessings of God all the more. Second truth is this. Pride incurs the chastisement of God. Pride incurs the chastisement of God. Go back to Isaiah 39, verse 3. It incurs the chastisement of God. Then Hezekiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they came from, to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Hezekiah said, I'm sorry, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up and stored to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. The first thing I want you to note is that God's word, God's chastisement is fair. Notice, notice verse 5, it's fair. And, and it's really, it, the implications are in verse 5. Then Hezekiah, I'll keep saying that, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Now, what's interesting, if you go to the parallel in 2 um, Kings 20, it's simply hear the word of the Lord. Hear the Lord of hosts. Why? Because in Isaiah, that's a particular particularly emphasis, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. We talked about that before. Remember, in the episode when Shennacherib is there surrounding the city, trust the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord God Almighty. This is a battle, both spiritual and physical, but I am the one who can defend you. And what we have here in verse 5, the implication is that it is an indictment on them Why are you considering even trusting the Babylonians and going into an alliance with them when the Lord of hosts is here? It makes no sense. I'm the God of generals. I'm the God of armies. And even as we read earlier from uh, Revelation chapter 5, remember the thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads are giving praise and, and honor to God. They are at his disposal. And remember, it only took one to do what? Kill 185,000 Assyrians. See, that's why it incurs the chastisement of God, and that's why it's fair. I'm here and I'm ready to help you, but you're choosing not to trust me. God's word is also precise. It's also precise. 
because he says that what's going to happen, all the treasures are going to be taken away. Even the sons that issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they'll become officials. Now, some have been unnecessarily tripped up by verse 7 because it says, well, some of your sons who issue from you, whom you beget. They say, wait a minute, that didn't happen. Well, but if we think about sons from him whom you beget that issue from you, that could be what? Grandsons and even great-grandsons that are coming from you as well. This is essentially what he's saying. And there's precision in it because, in fact, we know that this, in fact, happened. If we look at Isaiah 34, we won't go there, 9 to 15, prophetically speaking that your people will be taken away by the Babylonians. And we know that Jehoiakim and his family were all taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. So God's word is precise. It is fair, but it's also precise. But here's something that we should see. That chastisement comes, and and no one wants to receive the chastisement of God. But but in the same time, we should invite it to a certain degree because the book of Hebrews tells us what? He chastens every son whom he receives, and it produces something else. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Chronicles again. Now, we notice that there was pride in his heart in chapter 32, verse 25. There was pride in his heart, therefore wrath came upon him, and on Judah and Jerusalem. And then notice verse 26, 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 26. And let me make this statement. Humility, humility garners the compassion of God. See, pride, you're going to incur the chastisement of God, but humility garners the compassion of God. Notice verse 26. However, I love those at times. However, Hezekiah did what? Humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So God makes a pronouncement. The Babylonians are going to take you away. But he says, I'm going to stay this. You won't experience it in your lifetime, in part because you humbled yourself Before me. All of us at some point in time have demonstrated pride. And what we need to do is learn even from Hezekiah and the people of God when we've demonstrated it to as soon as we possibly can to do what? Humble ourselves instead of doing what? Holding on. Justifying. And in our own imagination, determine that what we have done is right. No. Humble yourself before the Lord. Um. Jeremiah gives, he, he refers to um, when Micah was also preaching at the same, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, and he was preaching against the people of God. Um, and it's interesting, if you turn with me, I'll just read it for you. Um, Jeremiah twenty six nineteen. it says this, this is interesting. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death, that is Micah, Micah preached against them, but they didn't put them to death. Why is it that you seek to put me to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. And what Jeremiah is saying, let's learn from the pattern of Hezekiah, whereas when God has pronounced judgment upon them, what did they do? They humbled themselves before the Lord. They did not put to death the prophet. No, they didn't. They heard the word of God. They humbled themselves, and God was gracious and compassionate towards them. Where would we be without the compassion of God? And this is why even Psalm 103 tells us that God is compassionate towards us like a father is compassionate towards his children. And a good father, when there's something that a child has done that is wrong, uh, when they come to him with sincerity and not just with crocodile tears, right? They come with sincerity. There's something that does what to the heart? That stirs the heart. And maybe that's why at times we'll say it's easy for um, the girls in the family to stir the heart of the man a little bit more. That's, that's true for me, I'll admit it. It is, because the, the guys come to me, well, show yourself a man. Come on, let's pick up the pace. You're, you're 
you're eight months old. What is this? <laughs> you know, straighten up and fly right, man. But then your girls come to you. Oh, Dad, you know, may I have, and I've heard this story so many times in my life. Joanna will attest to it. You know, Dad, may I have mercy? Because, we, you know, you teach them. That's the thing about it. You teach them about the mercy of God, and guess what? Mm, let's see how this works. <laughs> you know, I love that devotion we had in Psalm 103 about the compassion of God. Let's give this a, ru- let's give this a run, right? And then they come to you, may I have mercy. How many times did I hear that in my lifetime? May I have mercy. And there are times based on what I could sense from them in that moment, attempting to be like God. Notice that, like God. That's right, God is a God who hears prayers and he sees tears. But there are times that say, no, those are crocodile tears. No, I don't think you're sincere. It stands. See? But we should all be thankful when we come to the Lord our God sincerely that he's a compassionate God. Amen? See, if you look at this account, you, you don't see that. You don't see the humility. God said to his people, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people were called by my name, would do what? Humble themselves. I'll heal the land. Isaiah 57.15, if you would be lowly and contrite, then I will be with you. The psalmist tells us what? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Peter says to the young men of Asia Minor, if you would just humble yourselves and at the right time, God will exalt you. In this moment, Hezekiah is behaving like the coming Emmanuel, but he's not. The coming Emmanuel would do what? He would come as a bondservant in the likeness of men, and he would do what? He would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. Here's a third truth. Pride conflicts with the compassionate nature of God. Go back to Isaiah 39, verse 8. He says, what do I mean by this? Notice what it says. For he thought, for there would be peace and truth in my days. Commentators are sort of mixed on how we should interpret his words here. Um, I interpret them as selfish. Think about it. He wept when he was about to die, and maybe he was also weeping because he realized that if I die, then what about the seed? So perhaps he was thinking about the people. But then why no weeping over this? Why not ask the Lord, Lord, perhaps you can stay even what you said about the Babylonians coming and the sons that will come, come for me being taken away. There is no weeping over this. He's essentially saying, well, I don't have to deal with it. It's another indication that he is not becoming Emmanuel. The people of God will have to wait. Some final thoughts. Give me some principles for consideration. This is, let me give them to you rapid. It looks like Dr. Ferguson got out early, um, but I don't plan on stopping right now. So uh, number one uh, is this. Here are some principles for you. A godly walk is not immune to the sin of pride. It's not immune to the sin of pride. We see it in Hezekiah. There he was. He walked with the Lord. He was humble. He was gracious in, one way, in many ways. But yet, pride is always knocking at the door, is it not? It's always knocking. And this is why, in part perhaps, that Paul would say to Timothy that what you should do is that you need to flee youthful lust, but you need to pursue righteousness. Because if you don't have a plan to pursue, and if the only thing you're thinking about is, well, let me put away, put away, but you're not pursuing, you will hear that knock. You have to distance yourself from the knock, if you will. So don't think that in this moment I'm walking with the Lord, I'm immune to pride. It's not true. Number two, 
The blessings of God should act as reminders to offer sincere gratitude and praise. This is the thought of a Romans chapter 12. Now, this, here, here you are as a person in the Lord. Here are the truths. This is what God is, and this is what God has done for you. Now, offer up your life as worship. This is Ephesians 1. The many blessings that we have now live my life to the praise of his glory. Number three is this. Remember that all that you have has its source in the grace of God. So we should be seriously cautious in our boasting. God, all that I have is because of your grace. Number four, remember that God is trustworthy because his character will not allow any other outcome. God is a perfectly sovereign God. He is not changing. Unlike ourselves, we change in our modes and and our emotions and our commitments. God is an unchanging God. His character will not allow him to be anything but who he is. Number five, cherish the privilege of prayer as a means to participate in God's sovereign plan. Think about that for a moment. You can go to your knees or you can stand or whatever you may do and you can pray to the living God and you participate in God's sovereign plan unfolding. See that as a privilege and take advantage of that privilege. Here's a sixth consideration. Understand that the world will always present you with a grass is greener alternative to a decision of faith. We talked about that. Remember what Rapshakah, as he came to the people of God, he said to them, why is it that some of you who are doomed, he says, to eat your own dung and to drink your own urine, come out and you can go to your homes and you can have figs and you can have delightful things. That was that sense to say, don't trust God, come out, it's better out here. The world is always going to present you with it's better out here. And remember, I didn't say I could have worded it this way to the life of faith, but I said a decision of faith because, see, the re- it's on purpose. Our life is made up of everyday decisions, is it not? You will make decisions today that reflect your life, and you make a decision tomorrow and the next day and the next day that reflect your life. Number seven. Understand that you're involved in a spiritual war that is being watched by others. This is important. Israel's failure. Now, the nations look to Israel. You're supposed to be this nation that served Yahweh, the true living God. But look at your behavior. Even the Assyrians, early in the the narrative, the Assyrians, when Rapshakai is talking about the nations that they've destroyed, he doesn't even recognize the northern kingdoms as a part of, of Yahweh worshipers because it becomes so foreign to them. You see it in David. Remember when David fails, what does God say about David? He says, now you've given the nations uh, the opportunity to blaspheme my name. They're looking. People are looking at us. Accept that. Number eight, accept the tension that God uses the nations, or we might even just say suffering, to fulfill his sovereign will. Chastisement comes, and he uses it for a reason. The exiles were for a reason. He would chasten his people. God may be using something in your life right now to chasten you, but the question is, how will you respond to it? Number nine, rest in the reality that God's promises will be fulfilled. Amen? God's word will come true. The timing of it, at times is beyond us. And sometimes we see throughout the biblical narrative that many times people don't even experience it, but they look forward to something. Number 10, rest in the reality that God is a savior and warrior. God is going to fight for you in time of need. That seems to be a contradiction to some. How can God be a savior and a warrior? Because he is saving those that are repentant and he's warring against those that fight against him. Make sure that you're on the right side. Final thought. Take comfort in the reality that God desires to restore the brokenhearted. So Isaiah 36 to 39. Why did even the author put 38 and 39 where they did? Why does it read this way? 
Because now, beginning in chapter 40 all the way through 46, now we turn towards the Babylonians. But it's also a promise to God's people that I will bring you back. I will restore you. And we see that throughout. And throughout we see this theme that says, I alone, I alone, I am Savior. God is going to restore his people. And in part, the author has placed it here because it's saying that you should know that there is still hope. Hezekiah is not that hope. Because had it ended the other way, you'd have thought, oh, he is the Emmanuel. The Assyrians are dead. But it ends by saying, look at the frailty of humanity. Look at their failure. So you must look somewhere else. It is going to come from Hezekiah's seed, but it is not Hezekiah. Trust me. And we know for a period of time, it goes blank. And there are people today that will look at Isaiah 40 to 46, and they see it very differently than we do. But this is a message of hope. And God is saying to us, where's your hope? And I ask you, are you trusting the Lord of hosts? I mean, write down, whatever situation you're in in life, are you trusting the Lord of hosts? And, and let me say this as well. I know many of you, and some of you I know well. Some I don't know even really at all. Some I just saw you for the first time as you're visiting. Do you know the living God? That is, have you come to grips with your sin? And you realize that your sin dishonors God. And you've repented and said, Lord, forgive me. I've been thinking about this more and more in my life recently, but the horror of eternal separation from the living God. The world is telling you it's greener here. The world is telling you don't trust the Lord. Trust something else. The world is telling you that life can be better if you took this route. It's not true. And the Lord will hold you account for all that you've heard. Imagine that. There's some people that could never say, I never knew. You knew. The question is, will you trust? Father, we thank you for your word you give us. Guide us. Help us to apply these truths. In Christ's name, amen.